This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, welcome back. We'll go ahead and get started. Sure, some folks will trickle in late, but I do want to have the full, uh, full time that we can have together. So we'll go ahead and get started. The plan, we go to about... 9.35, 9.40 or so. If we have time, we might have some time for some questions or something like that. So we'll just, we'll see how that goes. We'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the morning that you've given to us. Thank you that we get to come together on the Lord's day. Thank you that Jesus has risen from the dead and reigning in heaven. And thank you that you've entered into a covenant with us through the blood of Christ so that we can know you. Lord, I pray for this class. I pray for the class as a whole. You would equip our church to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a um, quote from Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, the movie, not the book. This quote is not in the book, uh, but the movie begins with a quote from Galadriel. It says, the world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remembers it. I think as we're thinking about this class, Strange New World, you know, whether you're whether someone's a conservative or a liberal, whether someone's secular or religious, I think everyone could agree that the world has changed, that our, that our culture has changed over the past 50 years or so. Somebody living 50 years ago will just look at what's going on today in the news and popular culture, just think, where, what kind of world are we living in? I think that's the, the Kind of the reason of Truman's book title, Strange New World, right? It is a strange new world that we're living in. And uh, so what we're doing in this class is trying to understand how the culture has changed and equipping us as believers to live in this world that has changed. We're following the work of, uh, like I mentioned, Carl Truman. He's written two books, uh, one called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is the big book that my son has destroyed, so that's what's going on there. And uh, a smaller book that's kind of a condensed version of that book called Strange New World. Would recommend these books if you're interested in learning more. Also have another book that I wanted to recommend. This is especially for teenagers or parents of teenagers. It's called A Practical Guide to Culture. You don't have to be a teenager. I would be a parent of teenagers to read this book. But this is by a guy named John Stone Street. Um, I, my, part of my job, I teach at Paideia Classical School. And uh, with my students, I've walked through this book together. And it's really helpful. It's a little more, if Truman's more philosophical, this book is a little more practical. It gives kind of practical ideas of how to have conversations with uh, your, your kids, or how to even think about gender, sexuality, issues like that. It's very helpful. So in, in that book by uh, Stone Street, he talks about how, a, kind of a paradigm for understanding culture, he talks about cultural currents 
and waves. And what he means by that is the things you see, um, the, think about like the sexual revolution, uh, transgenderism, things that are just kind of very obvious how the culture has changed. He calls those waves, cultural waves that are kind of like crashing down one after the other. But he also talks about cultural currents. So the currents that are going underneath the waves causing those waves to happen. And I think it's a very helpful paradigm, very helpful image for us that we don't just want to see the waves and kind of be upset or angry or confused or scared about the waves. We actually want to understand the currents, things that are going on underneath those waves that are causing that to happen. So that's part of what this class is about and Truman's book is about, is understanding the cultural currents that are underneath the waves of our culture. And the hope is that we would really take on what, what one author has called discipleship in the present tense, right? We're, we're, we're following Christ in a particular place at a particular time. People have been following Christ for 2,000 years, and each generation has unique challenges, unique um, opportunities for gospel witness. And each generation, while they don't have to reinvent the wheel about what it means to follow Christ, each generation does have to look at, okay, what are the particular challenges we face today? It's what's called discipleship in the present tense. So I want each of us to think, okay, how do I follow Christ in my business, in my school, with my friends who think a certain way. A lot of the class uh, is going to have antithesis. So I think I put on your notes there, the goal of the class is antithesis, not antagonism. What, what I mean by that is, you know, when Christians get together and talk about culture, there, there's a lot you can, it can go a lot of different ways. One of the ways it can go is antagonism. It can just be an angry sort of, um, I don't know, an angry bashing of the culture, an angry um, denigration of people within the culture. And that's really not our job, right? We, we, don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to start any sort of fight. But at the same time, we have to recognize that there is opposition that's coming our way. So just to be a faithful Christian in this time and place, it's going to run in, you're going to run into tension, right, in your workplace or wherever you are. So I think the goal, one of the goals is antithesis, which just means seeing the difference. So I just want to highlight some of the differences of the way our culture thinks and the way the Bible trains us to think. And through that antithesis, uh, we can grow. It's really, I think of Jesus in Matthew 10 when he's sending out the disciples, he says, I want you to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think it's a great picture for us. We want to understand the culture, how the culture thinks, without being conformed to it. Wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And this class is just a small attempt to do that. So we're going to continue on with the uh, kind of the outline that last week, if you were here, Jake, uh, helpfully introduced Carl Truman's book, and he gave kind of the outline for the class. So each, each class will have some form of outline uh, that begins with reading the culture. That's our 
That's the term we're using for just understanding the culture, understanding the changes of our culture. We want to read it well. Um, we want to resist the culture. So th there is an element of we must resist worldly ideas, worldly thought patterns, worldly behaviors, and we want to reach the culture. We don't want to end there with resisting. We want to reach and be effective. Today's class is um, hitting on kind of the first big idea of Carl Truman's book. What he says is sort of the dominant current underneath the waves of our culture called expressive individualism. So for, for extra credit and uh, Cornerstone U, which I don't know, maybe you can redeem at the bookstore or something like, who remembers the three big ideas that Jake Simmons uh, last week kind of introduced for us that the book goes over? Anyone remember? Anyone remember the first one? Actually, I just said it, so kind of giving it away. Ex expressive individualism. Anyone remember the, the next one that he kind of talked about? Talked about the therapeutic culture and then talked about the sexual revolution. So those are kind of the three big ideas that we're going to talk about. Um, next week, Kevin Shipp is going to talk about engaging the culture, reaching the culture, and then the week after that, I think Jake Simmons and I are going to kind of dual teach on those last ideas. But today, we're talking about expressive individualism. Here's Carl Truman's thesis for his book, and I think I have this quote for you as well. He says, at the heart of this book lies a basic conviction. The so-called sexual revolution of the last 60 years, culminating in its latest triumph, the normalization of transgenderism, cannot be properly understood until it is set within the context of a much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of human selfhood. So what he's saying there is that it's the nature of how we understand the self that goes, that's underneath the normalization of transgenderism. He, he talks about, um, at the beginning of the book, one of the aims of the book is to understand why the phrase, I'm a woman trapped at a man's body, is even coherent. Um, and he talks about how if his father would have heard that, he would have just laughed. Because it just would have made no sense. It would have been nonsensical. But Truman's book helpfully shows that it's the culture's understanding of the self that leads to that being normalized or seen as normal. And we're going to kind of trace why that is and how that's happened. So the big idea I think that Truman's getting at in his book is that the sexual revolution is downstream from the selfhood revolution. The sexual revolution is downstream from the selfhood revolution. So what is expressive individualism? I just have a couple, I guess my outline kind of for the beginning is talking about just some questions, understanding expressive individualism. Um, I might abbreviate it by calling it EI, not AI. That would be another interesting uh, Cornerstone U class, but I'm not qualified to talk about that at all. And so EI's expressive individualism. So what, what is it, right? What is this idea we're talking about? I think the simplest definition is that what expressive individualism says is the purpose of life is self-discovery and self-expression. 
It's self-discovery, like looking deep within to find your true inner self and expressing what you find. And then other people's goal, what other people should do, is affirm whatever identity you're expressing. So self-discovery, self-expression. According to Truman, this idea, this is the strongest current underneath the waves of our culture that influences everything. The idea is probably best understood by the popular slogans associated with it. So I'm sure you've all heard these phrases, you be you, right? Be, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. All of these ideas, these slogans are based off of the assumption that the way to find your identity is to not receive it from the outside, but to look deep within kind of see the feelings that you have and then express that outward. So I hope you can even begin to see, well, that, if that's your operating assumption, it makes a lot of sense to say, well, if I feel that I'm a woman, even though I'm a man, this is what I need to express. Does that make sense? Kind of how that, that idea flows into where we are today. And I'm going to have several examples of this, but at first I wanted to share a quote by Charles Taylor. So Charles Taylor is a philosopher, and he's very helpful. He wrote a book, a really big book called A Secular Age, that kind of traces the, um, how do we go from a culture in the West that almost entirely believed in God to a culture where Belief in God in the sense of he's authoritative in my life and how we make decisions and how we think about things is, um, is really difficult to do. And he says this. He says that we live in the age of authenticity. And he says each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it is important to find and live this out as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society, or the previous generation, or religious or political authority. To kind of sum that up, it's, it's the idea of be real, be, be raw, be authentic. In our culture, think about what our culture hates. I think our culture hates, above all else, a phony, someone who's fake, right? And I want to be careful because as Christians, we don't like that either, Right? We think of Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer. Like when you pray, don't, don't be a hypocrite. Don't stand up and express something that's not truly in your heart. But the issue is when this inner authenticity becomes the main goal in life, that's when we run into all sorts of problems. So I was just thinking about like some popular statements as we're, as we're thinking about you know, what is the purpose of life? That's really the, the, the point of this class and the point of this session on expressive individualism is how would our culture answer the question, what is the purpose of life? There's no more important question to ask. And I thought I would just kind of contrast some statements throughout church history with um, what maybe someone in our modern culture might say. So St. Augustine uh, says... You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
just a wonder. I'm just actually trying to find excuses to bring Augustine's quotes into this, into this. That's the whole goal of that right there. It says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Purpose of life is to find our rest in God. That's what Augustine's saying. Expressive individualism says, we are made to find ourselves and our hearts will be restless until we express what we find. Thomas Aquinas says, final and perfect happiness can consist in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence, the, the beatific vision, standing before the throne of God, seeing him in his glory for who he is. Expressive individualism, EI, I'll just say EI, says, final and perfect happiness can consist in nothing else than being true to yourself. And I, I thought, contrasting it even with the first question and answer to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The question asks, what is man's chief end? Right? Man's chief end, according to the Westminster Confession, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a great thing to, um, just a great statement to hold on to. What's the purpose of my life? Glorify God, enjoy him forever. The worldview of expressive individualism says, your chief end is to discover yourself and express it forever. That's, that's the goal. You see the antithesis, the contrast between these two things. So where do we see this? Where, where do we see it in the culture? And I might get into trouble in this section because I'm venturing into popular examples that some of you may really like uh, these, these examples. And that's okay. The goal of this is not to say, shouldn't listen to this person or shouldn't watch this movie or these shows. Uh, but, but it is to just show how this thinking is sort of in our popular culture. So first example I thought of was Adele, the uh, popular British singer. Now I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some, oh no, it's going at Adele. So Adele uh, has came out with albums labeled 19, 21, 25, and 30, each labeled after how old she was when she released the album. And this last one, 30, really chronicles the story of her divorce with her husband. And what's interesting is that when she was interviewed about the album, she made it abundantly clear that her husband was a good man. That there, was, there was no, he, was, he wasn't angry, there was no infidelity, there was no um, kind of obvious issues that led to the divorce, but... What she said is that she wasn't able to be her true self with him, right? So I think of the lines from, from the album. There's a song called To Be Loved, and I'm going to sing it for you now. <laughs> Just kidding. Bria's like, please, no, don't do it. Adele. So it says this, let it be known that I choose to lose talking about her divorce. It's a sacrifice, but I can't live that lie. Talking about I can't, can't lie to myself, my inner self, what I feel is true. Let it be known, let it be known that I tried. In an interview, she did say, I had to focus on the most important relationship, the one with myself. Did you see how this thinking of inner authenticity being the highest value led to her divorce. She has, a, she has a son with this man, and 
she was actually celebrated for this step, right? Even though the destruction that it's caused. Think of another um, example. You could really pull from just about any Disney movie, and this kind of like paradigm sort of fits for it, but I was thinking about the lyrics to another song, and I'm sure you know the song, once I, or the movie, once I quote it. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Anyone know that? Frozen, right. Yeah, so that's Elsa from Frozen. What I notice about those lyrics, though, is think about no right, no wrong, no rules for me, no external authority telling me what's good for my life, what I need to do, no outside responsibility kind of leading me to the decisions I make. I'm free from that. And that's the culture's definition of freedom. Freedom from authority. Actually, freedom from all authority except the inner voice, the, the, the inner self. Again, the, um, the, the goal of that is not to say don't, don't watch Frozen or don't, don't watch any of these movies, but it is to, it is to think about how, how those ideas influence and lead to where we're at as a culture. I, um, one, one class I teach at school is um, it's a medieval literature and theology class. And one thing I love about teaching it is that the stories we read are so different from the stories of today and the movies of today. And so like this idea of the hero being the person who's true to themselves is just, it's just unheard of in any of these stories we're reading. The heroes in all these stories we read are ones who actually sacrifice themselves for the greater good. They're ones who... who who deny what they want in order to serve others, right? There's stories of chivalry, stories of bravery, stories of, um, of princes going and sacrificing their lives to gain the princess, things like these that, the point I think is we, we ought, this may be an application point, we ought to be careful about the stories that we tell our children. You know, I have two little boys and a third one on the way, so I, I, do not know, I do not know much about parenting at all beyond having two kids, you know, two years old and younger. It's kind of crazy in the house. But one thing that I've been thinking about is I just want to be careful about the stories that I tell them. I don't, I don't want to subtly influence them to think the greatest thing you can do is be true to yourself. I don't think that's true, according to Scripture. Okay, so where did this idea come from? Where, where does EI, expressive individualism, come from? Um, in, in his book, Truman talks about a lot of different places, but he really, he really highlights one thinker named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is from Geneva, so the same city where John Calvin was minister for years. Um, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau is pretty different from John Calvin. That's about the only similarity they have. He was alive in the 18th century. Uh, his writings led, or the leaders of the French Revolution were influenced by his writings. And Rousseau has two main works 
that people read today and comment on. The works are Confessions and Social Contract. Um, I actually had to read through and teach the social contract, and it's just horribly difficult to read. If you think that Truman is hard to read, just Rousseau is almost painfully difficult to read. Um, but his most famous quote, and I think that the quote that sort of shows how his thought influences culture today, is he says, man is born free and is everywhere in chains. Man is born free and is everywhere in chains. For Rousseau, the greatest problem in life is not internal sin. He actually doesn't believe in indwelling sin. The idea that we're born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve. He actually believes that people are born good. People are born with a clean slate. And the problem is that society influences them and uh, leads them astray. So his book, in his book Confessions, he tells a story. He tells a story about um, a friend he has who influenced him to steal a piece of asparagus. It's, it's kind of a weird story, but he steals a piece of asparagus in order to sell it and make some money. His friend influences him to do this, and he does it. And then he goes on a big reflection about the um, the way society kind of corrupts the individual. So there's, there's no sense of personal responsibility in that. It's society corrupts them. And it contrasts um, Augustine's confessions where he tells the story about when he was a youth, some of his friends encouraged him to steal a pear from a pear tree. I mean, it's almost, Rousseau's doing this intentionally to kind of make an opposing statement. And what, what Augustine says is he reflects on the fact that his nature was corrupt. He says, I didn't steal the pear because I needed the pear because I love stealing. There's this internal depravity that leads to, leads to our corruption. But Rousseau, so while Rousseau is not widely read today, uh, his ideas have really shaped how Western society thinks. The idea that the inner self, the inner voice is good and pure, and the issue is when external authorities kind of suppress that or direct that in ways that are unhelpful. Okay, so what are, what are some of the, if we're taking like our currents and waves paradigm, what, what are some of the waves that um, have been caused by expressive individualism? Where, where do we see this today in our culture? And I, I do think one of the main obvious waves is transgenderism. And we're going to spend not next Sunday, but the next Sunday talking specifically about um, the rise of tran the transgender movement how that's taken place, and how we should respond to it. But the statement, again, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, um, only makes sense if our internal feelings about who we are define who we are. So c coming, coming out as gay or trans is celebrated because it's the ultimate expression of internal authenticity. To, it's who you are, as opposed to who your parents want you to be, or as opposed to any authority says you are. Unless we, we, we must be careful about really picking on this example, because I think the same logic applies to no-fault divorce, which we have in our country, right? The idea that, you know, generations ago, it was not as easy to get divorced as it is today. Now there's really not, 
There doesn't have to be some significant reason. It could, it could be what Adele says of just, I, I don't feel like I'm being myself around you, right? So we have to be careful with that. Another one is, um, another wave we see is deconversion, deconstruction. This is a, this is kind of a movement of evangelicals who are leaving behind the faith that they grew up with, especially folks, you know, millennials, folks 20 years old, 30 years old, lots of people who grew up in the church leaving it behind. I mean, I, I can testify to several of my friends who I grew up with, went to youth group with, um, kind of leaving the faith totally or kind of accepting some, some version of the faith that's not true to historic Christianity. And almost always, almost always, the reason is that there's a critique of authority from the outside and a sense that this doesn't ring true in my heart, right? Like, I just feel like that's wrong. There's no submission to external authority. And finally, I, I do think that one of the ways that we see expressive individualism is the difficulty of commitment in our, in our day today. So my, my mom has been a nurse at the same hospital for 40 years. And I just think that's amazing. And I try to tell her that pretty regularly. And I, I asked her once, I was like, how did you decide to do that? I mean, you must have really thought long and hard about, you know, you must have really loved nursing or wanted to really help people before you went into that. And she said, well, I didn't really know what to do. So my dad told me to be a nurse. I was like, wait, that, that, that just totally threw me for a loop that that would be enough to sort of lead her to do that. The application is not, you know, teenagers do, you know, only take the career path that you're specifically told to do. That's not the application. But what it shows is her commitment to being a nurse at the same hospital day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, there were some days where I'm sure she thought, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. You know, this isn't, I don't feel like I'm doing what I'm, what I'm made to do or something like that. And that makes commitment really hard, right? To commit to a job or a spouse or to commit to somebody for the long haul if inner authenticity is the guide. So I wanted to kind of wrap up this section and then talk some about how to resist the culture. That's when we're going to get into scripture, which I'm really excited about. And we're going to talk about um, the book of Proverbs as a way to really confront and contrast this, this culture of expressive individualism. But I wanted to wrap it up with just these two different commencement addresses. So Kevin DeYoung gave a commencement address at a university, and in it, he quoted another commencement address by a New York Times writer named Anne Quindlen. And in DeYoung's speech was titled, Whatever You Do, Do Not Be True to Yourself. <laughs> Which I just find is really, if you, if you want to like grab someone's attention, that's, that's the way to do it. But he quotes, he quotes this woman's um, speech, and here's what she said. Each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse, the source of all that bedevils us. It is the source of all homophobia, xenophobia, phobia, racism, sex, sexism, terrorism, 
bigotry of every variety and hue, because it tells us that there is one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way is to feel your heart hammering inside you and listen to what its timpani is saying. To feel your heart hammering inside of you and listen to what its timpani is saying. De Young comments pretty, you know, in a witty way. He says, well, apart from many logical inconsistencies in that statement, not least of which is there's no one right way to do things, and now I'm going to tell you one way to do things, um, he says, it's typical commencement counsel. Follow your dreams. March to the beat of your own drummer. Be true to yourself. I'd like to offer some different advice. Do not follow your dreams. Do not march to the beat of your own drummer. And whatever you do, esteemed class of 2022, do not be true to yourself. I think it's a good, it's a good word that goes against the grain of our culture. So how do we, how do we resist it? How, how do we, I began with that quote from Galadriel in Lord of the Rings, because what she said was so good is that we feel it in the air, right? The change, there's not something that you can hide away from. This is, this is everywhere. If you turn on, if you watch any show on Netflix, just about, I mean, they're, they're, you're going to find this. So what do we do? And I think what we do is we build walls of resistance. So I'm, I'm going to talk about, if we have time, talk a little bit about reaching the culture as well. But what I want to talk about is, as resistance and reaching the culture, we need to build walls and build bridges. So think of it, again, Augustine talks about, in his book, The City of God, he talks about how the church is like a city right, that is founded on the love of God and the love of others. And it's side by side with the city of man. And the two exist next to each other. And the challenge for the city of God is to welcome those from the city of man who want to come in, who want to know the Lord, while at the same time being faithful to the Lord and his word and not being conformed. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about building walls to protect our hearts and our homes from this effect of expressive individualism and building bridges to those who are maybe refugees of the city of man. Those who have followed this path and realize it leads to death and want to come back or want to come and know the Lord. So how do we how do we resist the culture? How do we build walls to protect our hearts and our homes from the worldly wisdom of expressive individualism? There's many places in scripture we could go, but I'm, really, I'm not sure there's any better place to go than the wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, so the big idea for this section is that lady wisdom is a better guide than our hearts. Lady wisdom. The book of Proverbs uh, begins with the, a father giving advice to his son about life. So it's almost like a father with his arm around his son looking out at the world. It's like, son, you see that? That's, that's good. You see that? That's, that's not good. Don't follow that. And he gives this image, uh, uh, the father gives this image to his son that there's, there's two, which it's, it's not a bad illustration for if you, if you have a son to talk about two ladies, right? There's lady wisdom and lady folly, says, don't go after lady folly. Go after lady wisdom. 
How, how do we do that? And that the wisdom of Proverbs contrasts the wisdom of our world in so many ways. I could have 20 points on how Proverbs is just incredibly different than the wisdom of this world and how it's better than the wisdom offered of this world. But I just want to highlight a few. So Proverbs says, if, if, the, if the world says, follow your heart, Proverbs says, fear the Lord. If the world says, listen to intuition, listen to the voice within, Proverbs says, listen to instruction. Don't listen to your intuitions. If, um, if the world says, do whatever you feel is true within, Proverbs says, consider the end. So I'm just to give a few, we're going to go through this really, really fast. So just a few thoughts I'm here. Fear the Lord, don't follow your heart. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Later on, Proverbs says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charles Bridges, he defines the fear of the Lord this way. He says, the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. The fear of the Lord is about saying, Lord, you're God, I'm not, and I'm glad about that. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It means, it means God is the creator, I'm the creature, and that's a good thing. It says, I don't want to be my own creator. I don't want to define myself. I can't define myself because I didn't make myself. The fear of the Lord is humble reverence before the magnificent God saying, Lord, you've made me, tell me who I should be. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It says that our identity is a given. It's given to us as a gift. So, one, so an application, I guess, is how, how are we doing this in our, in our homes? How, how are we inculcating the idea that we don't create our own identity, but we receive it from the Lord? Uh, there's many different things we can do. One one thing I've enjoyed doing, again, this isn't something you have to do, is we're going through the New City Catechism, and there's songs with it, and so it's really cool. The songs are, what is God? And it says, God is the creator of everyone and everything. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. These are just truths that the Bible teaches that through through question and answer, through songs, can be driven into our hearts and our children's hearts to help us fear the Lord. So next, what else does Proverbs tell us? Well, it tells us to listen to instruction, not intuition. I think this is key. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 12, 15, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. Our culture assumes that the only one who knows what's right for you is you. The Proverbs say that is utter foolishness. If you think you know what's right for you, you are a fool, according to Proverbs. The fool insists, this is from Daniel Estes, he wrote a book on Proverbs. The fool insists on directing his own life, demanding autonomy, self-rule at all costs, even though it means eventual destruction. The fool makes personal freedom the chief value in life. On the other hand, 
Wisdom chooses to seek what is best in Yahweh's ordered creation. Listening to counsel. The wise man first listens to the counsel of God's word. He says, God, your word is truth. Instruct me. Second, the wise man listens to the instruction of others. So let me just ask teenagers in, in the room, are you open to your parents' instruction? Are you open to wise people's instruction in your life? The book of Proverbs says that's how you grow. You may feel like you have the answers on the inside, but God's word says you need instruction from the outside. An application to all of us. Are you open to, are you open to your spouse's instruction? Am I open to my spouse's instruction? Are you open to your friend's instruction, your wise friend's? Or do you assume that you know what's right for you? If you do, you might be influenced by this expressive individualism that's so um, just in the air that we breathe. So listen to instruction. And I think finally, listen to the instruction of tradition. G.K. Chesterton says, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who happen to be walking about. We shall have the dead at our councils. The Greeks voted by stones. These should vote by tombstones. What Chesterton's saying is that, you know, for many in our culture, our views on sexuality are narrow-minded and bigoted. Uh, many of us, many of you will be viewed that way. But what I would contend, you know, if I had a relationship with somebody, say, well, who really is narrow-minded? Because if, if most people, not just most Christians, most people throughout Western civilization have thought marriage is primarily between one man and one woman and a lifelong commitment, and only those living right now think that it's different, who really is narrow-minded? I would argue that actually considering tradition, the wisdom of those who have gone before us is humble. And Proverbs encourages us to do that. Last point, and we'll wrap up. And then next week, Kevin is really going to hit on the idea of reaching our culture. So I think I'm just going to end with resisting our culture. The last point is consider the end, not what's within. Biblical wisdom is always geared toward considering the end of the matter. What's What's the end? Where is this going? Uh, I watched this past week, went to see the Hamilton play. And Hamilton, is a, it was a great play. But there was one song that I hate. And I think everyone who watches it is just like, oh, this is the worst. And Alexander Hamilton, if you don't know, was one of the founding fathers. And but then really ruined his career through an adulterous affair. Uh, when his wife was away, he stayed in New York City had an affair, ruins his career. Um, it almost ruins his marriage, but his wife amazingly forgives him and they're restored. But what it shows is that, and the Proverbs testify to this, that doing what feels right on the inside in the moment is not a good idea. But doing what you see leads to life is the way, is the way to live. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 all have extended meditations on adultery because 
what they're doing is showing, look, the fool only thinks about what feels good in the moment. The wise person looks to the end of the matter. Says, when I get to the end of my life, will I find that I've made wise decisions? Will I find that I have life? So let's, let's conclude and pray with Proverbs 8. This is the wisdom, this is the invitation for us as folks who are seeking to love the Lord and pursue wisdom. Proverbs 8 says, Lady Wisdom's Invitation. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But who, who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me, all who hate me love death. So we, live, we live in a world captive by the wisdom of expressive individualism, captive by the wisdom of doing whatever you feel that is right inside yourself. But Proverbs, God's word gives us something better. It tells us that what's inside is full of sin, but God doesn't leave us to ourselves. God condescends to change us from the inside out and to instruct us and give us wisdom. So let us, let us pursue the Lord, let us resist our culture, and let us worship him in spirit and truth today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us that instructs us. We, we praise you that you haven't left us to ourselves. And I pray for everyone in this class. I pray for our church. You'd help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to resist the culture, but also to love those that are lost. Lord, I pray for folks to come into our church today who believe and think this way. And they would come in through the doors of the church and meet with Christ, who is the wisdom of God, and that they would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys, for coming. And next week, Kevin will be here. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.